You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Nicole Roundy spent six years as a member of the U.S. Paralympic snowboard team, being one of the first athletes to ever compete in the sport of parasnowboarding. She would go on to compete in two Winter Paralympic Games, in 2014 and in 2018. Now that she is retired from the sport, she has turned her attention to her vocation. Since completing her MBA, she has become an email marketing guru in the corporate sector. Nicole also happens to serve on the board of directors of Move United. So, Nicole, how are you? Good. Hi, son. How is the day going? I'm going, uh, it's going great. Thank you. So, thank you for joining me. I, I've been uh, wanting to talk with you for quite a while. <laughs> well, this is exciting. So, I think we, uh, we would, we'll start by uh, just introducing yourself to maybe listeners and folks that are tuning into our podcast. Um, I know, you know, just maybe start with just, how active were you as a child and how active or, or how important were sports uh, to you growing up? I was the youngest of six children. So I had two older brothers that loved to play soccer and run around and play basketball. And um, we, I mean, we, were, we were well off, but we weren't rich by any means. So I was never part of the soccer team or I never took dance classes or anything like that, but I loved being outdoors, um, climbing trees, getting into all sorts of trouble. <laughs> um, lots of water balloon flight fights, uh, good good times. Um, and then when I was about eight years old, I I started getting pain in my knee, and after a couple of weeks, I developed a bump on the outside of my kneecap, mm. and. My mom took me to the doctor and he sent me to another doctor, sent me to another doctor because nobody wanted to admit what was wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because it's a scary thing to tell a child that they have cancer. So so at eight years old, you were diagnosed with bone cancer, right? I was. I was diagnosed with osteogenic sarcoma. Um, and that's, you know, that's a thing about cancer that a lot of people don't know is that of all the people diagnosed with cancer, only 5% of those people are diagnosed with sarcoma. So it's a rare form of cancer. Um, mm. Amongst survivors of pediatric cancer, sarcoma is more common just because, you know, once you're in that space, the, su- survivor, the chance of survival now is a lot higher than when I was a child. Mm. Yeah, I didn't realize it was only 5% um, as well. So thank, thanks for Thanks for sharing that. I learned something new already today. <laughs> you know, I learned that from a cancer researcher that uh, I, I gave a speech out in California, and he actually spoke right before me. Um, and that was one of the things that just came up in conversation. Uh, he picked up that I had osteosarcoma because I'm half deaf, and that's kind of a common side effect of the treatment with that particular type of cancer. So. Really interesting fact um, that I didn't know either. Hmm. And so uh, at eight years old with the diagnosis, 
Um, how long was was it before you had to make the decision to uh, go through the amputation? The biopsy was performed on the same day that I started chemotherapy. So I went in, it was uh, the 4th of July. And even though I was just eight, I remember that day vividly. And my parents made the decision to go ahead and start therapy before I'd even woken up from surgery. So mm -hmm. I woke up and I was in the midst of it all. Um, they sick. How cancer treatment typically works. I mean, it's different for everyone and depending on the type of cancer that you have. But how it works is that they try to hit it with chemotherapy. If your cancer responds, then they know that they have a chance of fighting it. Um, and then in October, so this happened in July, in October, the doctors are like, okay, your cancer is responding. Your best chance of survival is to amputate the leg. So that was my parents have been making a lot of my treatment decisions for me up until that moment. And that's where my mom and my dad really realized that for me and the importance of me taking responsibility for the rest of my life, which is something that has to happen, I needed to make that decision. So, yes, I was young, but I understood that this was consequential and that it was really important that I felt comfortable with the decision I made. But but that's a huge decision for an eight-year-old to make. Huge. <laughs> it's, not, it's not small, but, you know, I think sometimes we need to give kids more credit. They're a lot braver than adults in a lot of ways. True. <laughs> True. There's things that scare them, but they tend to be more quickly accepting. They don't have as many responsibilities and things that they have to worry about. And that was true for me at the time. I was sad. I, you know, there's a picture of me that's in a lot of my speeches where I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I'm putting my shoes on for school. I was on chemotherapy, but I'd still go to school when I could. And I'm crying. And there's just tears coming down my cheeks because I know that, you know, my life is going to change drastically. So you were, you were one of those, um, uh, brave children and eight-year-olds who, who, you know, who, who need more credit then. <laughs> and, and so were you introduced to other sports or new sports then through just as part of your rehabilitation and, and, uh, physical therapy? I was, um, I think sports are, and especially with children, getting them active, getting them moving, getting them out. It's, it's a big deal, particularly when we're talking about confidence. Um, and I think that that's true with adults, too. I can't speak from adult perspective because I was a child. But I, I think that just being inactive in sports gives us confidence to tackle the other areas and avenues of our life that are maybe harder or equally hard. Um, but I started with running, which I never liked <laughs> <laughs> i never have either no? particularly when I, when I was forced to do it in the army i was like i'm done after that <laughs> and then as um i started growing up and moving in my teenage years i kind of got into basketball it's like i was the water girl for the basketball team 
And I tried out for the volleyball team. I wasn't, the key was that even though I was okay at volleyball, I couldn't get up off the ground fast enough. So with only having one leg, once I'd fall down, I wasn't quick enough to get back up to be part of you know, the rest of the team. Um, but I still got to go to the practices and I still got to participate, even though it wasn't at the level that I wanted it to be. Or, you know, prosthetic technology has come a long way. That story might be different in today's society than mm-hmm. it was at that time. My knee growing up, it was a very basic hinge. There was nothing complicated about it. There wasn't a microprocessor. There wasn't a hydraulic. There was nothing attached to it. Um, it was just a hinge. Yeah. And and you were living where at the time? So I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. I thought so. And so you had all of these outdoor recreational amenities near you. So were you... Was the snow scene, the the winter sports scene, uh, prominent on that list? You know, it's it's kind of funny considering how close Salt Lake City and Denver are to the mountains and some amazing recreation. The large majority of the population there doesn't actually participate in snow sports that often. <laughs> and my family had never been skiing. Really? Um, I I had never been on skis. I'd never been on snow. Until so, I was 14 when I participated in almost a chapter of Move United in like a learn to ski camp, and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I loved I loved being in the snow. I loved being outside. Um, I liked the idea of it. My issue with being a 14 year old was that I really craved independence. Mm. and on the skis, I wasn't able, I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't able to pick myself off the, off the snow. Um, and I really, that was, that was a hard one for me. Um, maybe it was a pride. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it was, I wasn't comfortable getting back on the snow and requiring somebody like keep picking me up, picking me up. Um, Again, that might be different now. I'm too tired to keep picking myself back up. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's very apropos for a teenager, you know, to, I, I, I want to be left alone. I want my independence. And so, yeah, that that, that doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, you know, I lived in Salt Lake when the Olympics came in 2002. That was the first Olympics that had snowboarding on the able-bodied side, the two-legged side. And I I actually I had a re- recording reference watching Kelly Clark and mm. her winning run in the half pipe. Um, and I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Because unlike some of the other sports where the competitors were like at each other's throats, they were really pitched against each other. Snowboarding felt like a family. Everybody, it, it just had a really good energy and a vibe. Um, even now in this past Olympics, if you watch the snowboarding events, the women run up and hug each other at the end. Mm-hmm. I saw that, yeah. Whether they did well or, or not, it didn't matter because they were just having fun together. And that is what really appealed to me with the sport in the first place. And I thought, yes, the sport looks fun, but there's also a sense of belonging 
with sportive snowboarding that a lot of sports don't have. Yeah, snowboarding is definitely uh, a big community, as you as you said, and that was evident watching the Olympics and Paralympics, uh, even just uh, this past month or so. So, and, and that's right. I, I forgot about Salt Lake City, of course, being a host of, of 2002. Did you go to any of the events, or were you just watching the the snowboarding on on television? Um, in in 2002. Mm-hmm. I. I believe I watched the snowboarding on television. Um, I only saw a couple events live, but it was just equally inspiring to me. Um, and it was enough for me to keep knocking on a door and asking, can I try snowboarding? Can I try snowboarding? For the first couple of years, the answer was no. Um, and a lot of that was attributed to the fact that the prosthetic technology hadn't advanced to a level where people could see it happening. And you were, I believe, the, f- the first to compete in snow- pair snowboarding in 2006? That was 2006, yes. So 2006 was the same year that I got my first prosthetic leg that was designed, not specifically for snowboarding, but could be used for snowboarding. Um, and I, I got that leg just a couple of I don't think it was even a couple months I think it was like a month before Amy Purdy actually called me she'd started a non-profit organization um, that a lot of people are familiar with now Adaptive Action Sports and uh, invited me to come out to Tahoe for like a learning clinic but also a competition and that's kind of where it all started mm-hmm so that's an amazing that's an amazing turnaround from really in four short years. I mean, sometimes years can be can seem forever, but in my opinion, four short years from watching snowboarding on television to being one of the first to compete in Paris snowboarding, it's it's pretty pretty cool turnaround. And it is, um, and I think you know, in the disabled world, I think I'll. I'll good chunk of the athletes we don't like look at a sport and say i want to do that and i want to go to the games and i want to represent my country we just we see it and we're like that looks fun and i want to do that and it just kind of progresses into a bigger journey at some point in 2006 i just wanted to ride with other people that had similar challenges um, that we're still trying to figure out how to make their prosthetic legs work for snowboarding. Mm-hmm. That was my goal. I wasn't looking beyond that, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and so not only did you get to watch the first snowboarding competition in 2002, but you got to compete in the first pair snowboarding competition at the international level uh, when you went to the Paralympics. I did. And there's definitely a time gap there. And- I mean, you have to remember, like, this journey takes place over a decade. That's far more than we can talk in in a podcast. Um, but there were a lot of ups and downs, and there were a lot of closed doors. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's really interesting about sports, like, yes, we had amazing stories and a lot of fun, and there's an incredible level of gratitude for getting to live that journey. But it doesn't come without a lot of struggle and a lot of challenge. And 
we were not wanted. In the international space, we were not wanted. Um, and we banded together. And there also wasn't really a pipeline of how to develop a sport and get it into the international level. Because it's almost a double-edged sword where <laughs> you need a sport to be big enough to where it's marketable so it can get funding. But then you also need the marketing and the funding in order to get the sport where it's big enough to mm-hmm. get the sport. <laughs> so um, this is what we struggled with. And there's sports that are in development today that are struggling with that same thing. But there's not really necessarily a blueprint of how to do that. You know, you mentioned two really two things that really struck struck me. One is is the fact that you weren't wanted. Why do you think that was? Why do you think that was the case? I think that that's been a challenge for snowboarding always. Um, <laughs> Just because because it's perceived as an alternative culture or something. I think I think it's different. I think that it's divided from more traditional sports in the way that it's structured, in the way that there's a lot of unknowns, and and especially from a business or political perspective, it can be really hard to accept and want to support something when when the level of development isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one, I mean, that's one thing that's different between the disabled sports community and the able-bodied sports community is that in the disabled world, it is really hard to get any kind of support outside of the international level mm-hmm. because the international level is what has participant numbers. And even then, sometimes there's not enough participants that want to compete at a professional level. On the recreational level, a lot of people want to be involved. And that's amazing and that's great because that's where the good stuff is. Mm -hmm. Um, But in order to provide those opportunities, we found that it really helps to have that professional competitive element as well. Yeah. And the other thing that you said, Nicole, that struck me was about you know we, the fact that we kind of glorify this the, this sport in general, and we we kind of gloss over sometimes the the trials and the tribulations and the struggles. So I think that that was important to share. So thanks thanks for doing that because sometimes you know I mean many of our athletes uh, whether they're even at the recreational level or definitely trying to get to a competitive elite level. There's a lot of that. They're going through a lot of that on a regular basis and disappointment and, and you know, uh, what may be perceived as failure to them or, or, or whatever, because they didn't meet a particular goal or objective. So that just, that comes with the territory, doesn't it? It does come with the territory. I have had my, you know, I hate the word failure, mm-hmm. but I have had my failure. Um, or, character development <laughs> whatever you want to uh, whatever you want to call it um there's a lot of strength that comes out of meeting those things head on um there's also a lot of frustration that comes out of that and, and not all of those challenges are good and not all of them develop 
perspectives or opinions in a healthy way. Um, and I think I, I say that because there are some challenges that can't be overcome outside of changing your perspective about them. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And you're right. We are, we are, we are truncating this a little bit, obviously in our podcast. So that, that 10 year period, we, we truncated down to, to two minutes. So I'm going to truncate even further. So, um, cause I want to talk about obviously some of the things that you're doing now and today. So obviously you, you go to, to your two-time Paralympian. So you go to, uh, uh the Paralympics in 2018 as well. And, and so, kind of moving moving kind of a little bit more to, to present how was it um or what was it like watching uh the paralympics in beijing as as a two-time uh participant at that international level what was what, what kind of what kind of observations did you have what kind of thoughts and feelings did you have um i was excited to see the progression in the course um, not necessarily on the athlete side, but on the uh, venue side. Um, one of the things that we've been arguing for a while is that we want inclusion in that we want to ride the same courses that the other athletes ride. Like we don't want a separate course. I think that there can be concessions made to a course where, you know, we might be limited in how fast we go and we might, we can't, we don't have enough speed to make the trajectory and the transition in the course. You know, those are things that have to be considered, but usually an able-bodied course can be adapted for the Paralympic um, riders. I mean, we originally maybe we weren't that good but we are now and i think that that is really cool to see in the progression of the sport um i am continually impressed with how much the writers are progressing they're doing speeds and performing at the level that i dreamed of <laughs> and i think i think towards the end of my career i was getting close to that but um ultimately my body was pretty beat up from riding on prosthetics that weren't necessarily designed for snowboarding. So, you know, starting in the ranks like that, you you take a lot of hits and not just to your body, but um, I took a few hits to the head that probably could have been avoided by good equipment. Um, so there's definitely a level of sacrifice when you start the sport <laughs> versus when you grow the sport. <laughs> Um, I, I it's it is nice to see the athletes doing so well um, and continuing to to progress. And along the lines of inclusion and and equality and parity, um, one are you are you uh, excited about being able to put the the PLY behind your name and and that news that just broke in the last I guess couple of weeks. <laughs> I might have a contradictory opinion about that. Okay. <laughs> so uh, when you actually <laughs> when you actually go to the games, you get certificates that say you're a Paralympian. So I don't necessarily need another certificate that says POI on it because I already have certificates that say POI on it. <laughs> you're a Paralympian regardless, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's something that I already had the honor of doing that. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I already have a piece of paper that says that. So it's not necessarily something I needed, but um, I do think it's important that people understand what that distinction is and what it means. And I think it's important that organizations are willing to give us a shot. Um, We are incredibly talented. We have really unique perspectives of the world. Um, Paralympians tend to be a little bit on the older side. So when they come out of the game, there's actually a correlation between um, more professional senior athletes, Olympians, maybe less so Olympians just because they tend to be younger. But the Paralympians, it's not uncommon for a lot of us to be 30 and 40 years old when we retire. And that we have to be able to provide for our families. So taking an entry-level job at an organization isn't something that we can do. You know, we need to find another avenue. Um, And that's something that happens to be similar with the military side of things as well. When they come out, they tend to be older and they have a family and they have responsibilities. So I think that anything that we can do to help elevate people and um, give them an opportunity in society to thrive is is worth it. Well, and, and along those lines, I know that you, you've been thriving. You've been doing well, um, obviously, between <laughs> competing and and going through, you know, some college programs. You've you've gotten obviously an undergrad. You've recently, I, I recently maybe a uh, maybe outdated by now, but but you've earned your master's degree. And um, and what do you see um, in terms of what you're doing now? And 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 did you ever anticipate that that's what you'd be doing? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think like a lot of professionals, we don't necessarily choose our career. We choose our degrees, but not our career. Uh, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Right. right. Um, <laughs> I, you probably didn't think that you would be where you are right now. That's but um, you've had an amazing career with Move United. Um, <laughs> I So one thing that happens... Back So back in 2014, around that same time frame, they started to identify that athletes didn't have a way to transition out of sports. And what that led to was a lot of depression and um, just mental struggles as they were trying to, you know, let go or grieve their career. I don't know if grief is always the right word, but just move on from something that was so struggled and structured, this moment I meant, so structured and the level of dedication and passion is all consuming. So you're coming out of that environment, something that has consumed your entire life for a while, and you're struggling to pick up pieces of what's left without it. They started to identify this and they finally started putting together some resources to help the athletes as they transitioned out. My timing at 2018 was actually really amazing because it was when all of those programs are starting to get come into place. And I've been able to really utilize some of those things to further my education and um, work on professional networking. 
Uh, my MBA was part of that program. They provided the financial assistance to pay for my MBA. I definitely would not have been able to do that on my own. Um, and then there's a couple other just professional transition programs that you can participate in as an athlete. So that was really critical in helping me define what it was that I wanted to do, what I was good at, and ultimately where my career would go. I was lucky as an athlete where I have an existing skill set out of the sports. Um, I, I started doing front-end coding and email marketing when I was very young, uh, also as a teenager. <laughs> so uh, thanks to my brother. My brother uh, is very into computers. <laughs> so, um, he's an IT manager with another company. So with his influence, I learned how to build very basic websites. And I've been able to kind of go back to that skill set and grow from there. Um, and it's it's really amazing. It was it was truly a blessing because I had somewhere to put the passion and the energy and to keep myself going during the times that were hard. Well, definitely that technology background is is critical and and ever important in today's world. And you've got an a business an MBA and you've got this marketing background. So, so you've got uh, definitely a, the right package for, for success in your career. And, and, um, and I think, I think it's important to, to talk about, you know, cause we always talk about, um, you know, employment in the disability community in general, you know, being way behind, um, you know, tra tra general trajectories. And so, um, so having programs that, that not only allow folks to, to utilize what they learn in sports, because that, that's important. I mean, you learn so many things in your development, develop so many skill sets and and values that are, that's important through sport that you can transfer into into an employment community or, or, or a business community. So I think that's just really great that you had those resources available to you. And, and now we just need to figure out how to how to get that out, you know, outside of, um, you know, the elite level uh, athlete, you know, kind of kind of area to, to maybe, um, you know, more folks that are just participating in, in adaptive sports in general. And, you know, without having much insight into the data, I mean, you might actually more know more about the level of uh, unemployment amongst those living with a disability than I do. Uh, but I do hope and think that the pandemic might have improved that just because so many opportunities are now available to remote work. So we now have the ability to, even if you weren't very technical before, um, maybe there's an opportunity to transition into a more technical role that can be more flexible and be more open to remote work. Um, and just the overall perspective in society that people need to understand that in the modern world, we need flexibility. And sometimes that means we need to be home because we have small children. It might mean because, you know, we have a doctor's appointment that we can't miss. And if we, we're trying to commute and go to work, then it makes it really difficult. We have to take a whole day off just to, to mm -hmm. get into to that doctor's appointment. So. Um, I think understanding that people can be extremely productive 
and not only meet but exceed goals from working from home and and having that flexibility and that you know the opportunities to have more control over their life that's a big deal and I hope that it has a positive impact on those numbers and, and that opportunity that's that's a good very good point my my last question for you is uh, obviously you've opened that new that next chapter in your life and and kind of hung up the uh, competitive the, the the competitive snowboarding hat um you're on a, on the board of directors for move united and what what do you why why is it important to still stay connected and involved in you know this movement that we're that we're working to create and and what do you hope you know the is the role that you can play in that you know, that's a good question. Throughout, there were some moments in my career that as an athlete, I was probably a little bit too close to the politics and the organizational struggles um, that were around the sport. And when I retired, I knew that I still wanted to be involved and I still wanted to have a positive impact, um, but maybe not being so close to competitive level sports. Um and particularly, you know, going back to just being a child and the role that recreational sports play, mm-hmm. not in just my life, but I've seen it all throughout my career. And even now, I struggle if I don't get to go outside and see green growing things and breathe fresh air. Um, and I know that when you're in the trenches, when you're in, in the middle of an injury or an illness, that's one of the first things to go. And yet that's what makes me feel alive. And I know that a lot of people can connect with that, not just with the recreational sports, but just being outside and being able to move. And, and that's one of the things I love about being part of the team that helped to rebrand our older organization is the term Move United. So we're not just talking about people who have physical disabilities. We're talking about the general public. Like, this is about inclusion. It's about having the opportunity to get out there and um, be able to thrive mentally and physically, um, despite whatever challenges we are facing in our lives. So that's a mission that's very important to me. and I really, really loved being a part of the board and being able to still bring a strong perspective and, and help the organization continue to thrive. Well, wonderful. Well, it's been delightful to chat with you, Nicole. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much.